ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. So I remember when we were driving, driving in your car, speed so fast to fill Country music is all the rage in the US, with country artists topping the charts. Today in Australia Wide, we ask why country has not got the same foothold here. A lot of the issue is the whole country and western thing. You know, everyone says, oh, how do you write a country song? It's about when you lose your dog and your wife leaves you and this, that and the other. And those cliches are definitely there. I mean, you don't have to look hard to find them. But there's a lot of really clever music. There's a lot of really clever songwriters. So I think once people open their minds to that sort of thing and, and look past the stupid cliches of the, you know, chewing straw in the fields kind of vibe, um, they might actually find something that's, that's quite cool and, and not always so stereotypical. And we head to one of Australia's most remote territories, Thursday Island in the Torres Strait, to hear how they're feeling post the referendum vote. If your mind is narrow, then you are the problem. Yeah. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wajak Country, Perth. going to head to the regional town of Lissero on the central coast of New South Wales. You might not know it, but Lissero is home to Sarah Lee, the brand famous for making the Bavarian cheesecake, apple pies and chocolate cakes you've probably eaten at a barbecue. Sarah Lee has gone into administration and its New Zealand parent company, South Island Office, is looking for a new owner for the dessert maker. Our reporter, Emma Simpkin, joins me now. Now, Emma, what does this mean for the 200 staff that work in the Sarah Lee factory? Well, obviously, this is really worrying times for the staff. Uh, This came completely out of the blue. Uh, Everyone seemed to be blindsided by the news that the company was going into voluntary administration this week. Uh, I was there this morning at the factory. The the car park was full. Um, The beautiful smells from the the bakehouse were wafting across the local area. I mean, anyone that lives in this uh, small little town can smell the factory at work. And it's it's not that awful manufacturing smell that you may be familiar with in some industries. This is more than pleasant, dare I say. Mm. It was um, absolutely gorgeous smells at seven o'clock this morning. Um, as you could smell, uh, you know, what it's famous for, whether it was, you know, a base for a, an apple pie or some croissants or or one of their famous Bavarian pies. You, you know, you could smell that the, the bakers were at work and, uh, you know, it's a concern when you find out that... Uh, your company's been placed into administration and the, the future is somewhat unknown. I can imagine it would be disastrous for the waistline living there. But, <laughs> but I mean, obviously, serious for those staff. They're obviously continuing um, producing today. But what's the reason for it? Why has the company gone into voluntary administration? A lot of details haven't yet been revealed. I, I had uh, a call today with someone from FTI Consulting, and that is the company that uh, is charged with trying to find a way out for Sarah Lee. But there have been no firm answers to exactly what has gone wrong, whether it's uh, the skyrocketing manufacturing costs. We know it is tough times at the moment in the industry. We know the 
that uh, energy prices are extremely high and running a, a bakery would have uh, very high costs involved. But uh, the local member here, David Meehan, has uh, been asking questions about this institution, this local institution. It's been here since 1971. And he says that, uh, in fact, it's the, the New Zealand company, South Island Office, that's struggling more so than the Sara Lee brand itself. Well, look, it's certainly a shock to the uh, the workers on site because um, they see, you know, they see product going out the door. And um, spoken today with um, the CEO uh, who works on the site, and he he's um, he's quite clear it's a viable business. That's local MP David Meehan. Now he indicated there that it's turn there's turnover there, and you could smell that there was turnover there <laughs> today when you're in that car park. So. Is it a case of the product not being sold? Are we still buying Sarah Lee products? I mean, they're very familiar to everybody or are we getting health conscious? Is it anything to do with that? I mean, it is a household brand and, you know, back a couple of years ago, I think it had something like 98% brand recognition. So people certainly know the brand. I guess that's the question. Are are people still buying as many frozen desserts uh, as we try and move towards being more health conscious? But certainly uh, the local member is suggesting that uh, the brand is still doing well, that the company is still doing well, that it is selling a lot of produce and that it's more a financial financial issue for the New Zealand company, which perhaps borrowed too much to buy uh, Sarah Lee back in 2021 from McCain. And I guess that for many of the workers who have been there 20, 30 years, they've been through this before, never an administration, but the company has been sold a number of times. A great deal of hope there today, speaking to, uh, through the fence, a couple of bakers uh, on a break. And uh, they sort of said, no, it's, it's business as usual. We're, we're doing our job. And they were feeling confident uh, that there would be a a resolution and that a new buyer or a restructure would occur that would ensure that this uh, important business on the Central Coast can continue. Emma, you spoke to Frank Zanet. Tell me a bit about him and where he fits into the picture. He's from Central Coast Industry Connect, uh, which is a, a group that's really helping to to drive uh, the the industries and manufacturing on the Central Coast. There's a huge push for food hubs on the Central Coast. It's considered a, a growing industry. A lot of it is forward thinking. A lot of it is future food industries. Whereas I guess Sarah Lee's a, a little bit more historic, a, a little bit more traditional in the sort of food uh, that they're producing. Uh, he worked himself at. Uh, the, the company back in the early 2000s and he remained optimistic in terms of uh, keeping the business here on the Central Coast. That's, that's a, a decent workforce. I mean, if you look at um, the food manufacturing sector uh, on the coast employs about 2,800 people, so 200 people is not insignificant. Uh, and in manufacturing, we've got about just under 9,000 people. So again, you know, the 200 people is, is a big numbers, but uh, I would think and hope that, um, you know, they would continue uh, if someone takes over the business. Uh, but again, until we know what the new business will look like, uh, it's, it's hard to say where it uh, will end up. People uh, recognise Sarah Lee be, probably because of its history. And, you know, we've all had, um, uh, the, the, uh, you know, uh, a dessert or cheesecake or yeah, the famous tray cakes. Um you know, and I think, um, you know, the challenge for, um, you know, any business operating in that space is how do you make it um, a more convenient food? And that's where, um, you know, um, we've got to be. I mean, frozen is 
is difficult. You're competing against uh, a lot easier things to, to deal with, uh, like you know, in terms of ice cream and whatnot. Uh, but um, yeah, look, uh, whoever takes it on uh, will um, you know uh, will get some a good capability and capacity. That's Frank Zamish talking about Sarah Lee going into voluntary administration today. Emma Simpkin, thanks for bringing the story to Australia Wide. No worries, Sinead. The good news is guilt-free eating sticky date pudding or Bavarian pie tonight and you'll be doing your bit for a local company that's struggling. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide. We head now to Thursday Island, a small island in the Torres Strait, north of the Cape York Peninsula in far north Queensland. Islanders voted overwhelmingly in support of the voice referendum, with about 70% of people on the islands voting yes. Now, our reporter Chris Testa travelled to Thursday Island and spoke to islanders about how they are feeling post-referendum. Now, before we get into the referendum, Chris, tell me about Thursday Island. It's a place I've never been and many people haven't been there. Tell me about what it's like. Yes, Sinead, it's an island off the northern coast of Queensland in the Torres Strait. And Thursday Island's significant because it's the main administrative centre of the Torres Strait. So it has quite a high number of government workers. The main hospital for the Torres Strait is there. Um, There's a multitude of government agencies and workers who've headed up there. And it's a bit of a hub for the Torres Strait. A lot of people from the outer islands will go in to Thursday Island for things that they need or to access services. So it really is that hive of activity. Um, But many people will tell you when you head up there that to see the real Torres Strait, you do do need to go beyond Thursday Island um, to the outer islands. And Thursday Island is known by its traditional name of Wyben or Wybenny to many of the locals there as well. So what are the big issues facing islanders? Access to housing is a big one that came up. Uh, the population, I think, is just shy of 3,000 people, but because there are so many of those government workers that I mentioned and, and public servants, um, some of those people have housing provided, uh, accommodation provided as part of their employment, and many people who live on TIOY Ben will say that it's quite difficult for locals to get access to housing. There's not there's some building going on, but it is quite a small island. You know, you can get around the island in about ten or fifteen minutes by car at the most. Uh, so people are struggling in a way to find housing. The cost of living is very high because of the sheer distance to get things sent up from Cairns or further afield. It all goes by barge. Uh, The main airport is on nearby Horn Island or Nurupai, so things will get uh, sent up there and then onto the other islands by sea. So the cost of living is quite high. We we bought some groceries while we were up there and, um, you know, things like biscuits, a pack of biscuits might cost you six to ten dollars. Fuel was two dollars fifty five for unleaded. And if you head to the outer islands, it can be above three dollars. So. A lot of the issues that people are dealing with in other parts of the country are really felt quite acutely here on Thursday Island and many of the locals would like a greater say in how their affairs are managed. Chris, now the majority of Thursday Islanders did vote in favour of The Voice. You spoke to Milton Savage, who's one of the traditional owners there. Tell me about him and what he had to say about the outcome of the referendum. Yeah, Milton Savage is a, a Kaurig traditional owner. Um, the Kaurig uh, nation has some of the islands in that part of the Torres Strait. Um, he was 
he was a strong supporter of the Yes campaign, which was very visible on Thursday Island as we headed around. There were a lot of Yes signs. We flew in uh, and there was a Yes sign right there at the Horn Island Terminal. Much less of a visible No campaign. We did come to know that there were no no there were some no voters but there wasn't as much of a visible presence and this was quite encapsulated with our chat with Milton Savage he really saw the yes campaign um, as something offering hope for people and uh, he now really wants no campaigners now that they've won to come and present a new vision of a way forward between uh, to help indigenous people um, close that gap and move forward we got all these beautiful islands that we can do a lot of, lot of uh, positive things, you know, uh, establishing our economic freedom uh, to give our people the actual, you know, right uh, to engage in businesses, you know. Uh, you look at tourism and, um, yeah, all other, you know, business opportunities are out there. I mean, this is what we need to invest in, invest in our own economy. That's Milton Savage, and he was speaking to our reporter Chris Testa on Thursday Island. Now we now we know now Australians on the whole didn't vote for the Voice. What did Milton have to say about that? Yeah, the outcome isn't what people in the Torres Strait voted for. Um, he says they'll now look to other paths for greater self determination and a greater sense of autonomy in the Torres Strait. Um, He has some ideas about that, and some people have other ideas, so the outcome really depends on on who you ask. But here's what Milton Savage thought about what he and his nation might do next. For me, what I'm thinking now is I should just focus on my people and my own kingdom and my own, you know, because it's a waste of time for me to, you know, try and stand up, uh, include... Uh, address and support uh, issues that, you know, that, you know, being rejected by, you know, narrow-minded people. Milton Savage, there are 274 islands in the Torres Strait. Chris, did you manage to speak to islanders from other islands while you were there? Other than Thursday Island, obviously. We didn't travel beyond Horn or Thursday Island, but one of the great things about the Torres Strait is that people do have connections and still maintain quite strong connections to their home islands and the nation that they're a part of. And one traditional owner we met is Robert Sagigi. He's from the Wakaid clan of Bardo Island. Um, he has a very different vision for the Torres Strait's future, and he's campaigned for decades to state and national leaders for the islands to become, uh, as he would say, a territory separate from Queensland, which the Torres Strait was annexed to in 1879. Well, you got Norfolk Island, you got Norfolk Island, yeah, Australian territories. Yeah. And remember, we got water in between. We isolated. And we want to run our affairs, our, you know, self-determination, you want to call them. It's all there. It's all the promises that government talked to United Nations, you know, but nothing happening. So we're going to do, you know, we tribal people now. We're going to action things based on needs of our people. And if you can assist that need, if the kitchen's hot, get out. Badu Islander Robert Sugigi there. And very much talking about seceding there, Chris. Yeah, maybe not quite succeeding, but he sort of made the point that the Torres Strait has a lot of resources that other nations such as China may want. And he feels that traditional owners should have the freedom to negotiate with who they want and and have a real say in how um, how their homelands are run. It's worth pointing out that this comes at a time that Torres Strait Islanders 
are campaigning, for example, for a greater say in how their local hospital service is managed. And there's a review underway to look at improvements in the Torres and Cape Hospital and Health Service at the moment. So very much a... It's not a new thing, the call for self-determination. To a degree, they do have more self-determination than other parts of the country because they have the Torres Strait Regional Authority. But again, that falls under the Commonwealth and it's a an entity that could theoretically be abolished by a government of the day should they wish to go down that path. So they're really, some of these people, like Robert Segega, are really looking for something more permanent that perhaps taps into those um, tens of thousands of years of, you know, being independent and being their own nations. Chris, do you think the outcome of the referendum really emphasised a feeling of difference for the Torres Strait Islanders to the mainland and how the mainlanders feel about them? Maybe not the mainland as a whole, because we could say that we've seen similar things happen in places like uh, Indigenous communities on Cape York, for instance, which in most cases also voted quite heavily in favour of The Voice. One other person we spoke to while we were on Thursday Island was Perina Drummond. She ran the local Yes campaign on Thursday Island and was um, very pleased when she found out the the voting figures of just above 70% for the Yes campaign. Um, She believes that it's an opportunity for Australians to educate themselves about Indigenous disadvantage, and she has a good idea of how people can do that. Go out to the remote island communities, the remote Aboriginal communities on the mainland and, and you know, understand what how people live, understand um, why there's a disparity, understand um, why the, the, the statistics about our health, our, our you know, our education, employment, why why they're so, so, so far apart. That's Perina Drummond and she was speaking to Chris Testa out on Thursday Island. Chris Testa, thanks for telling to Australia Wide. My pleasure. Thanks, Janine. ABC Australia Wide. Morgan Wallen, Luke Combs, Lainey Wilson and Zach Bryan are all country music artists dominating the charts in the US as well as here in Australia. There's not one Australian country musician in the charts here. Lucy Cooper spoke to members of the music industry to find out why. Country music is taking over US charts and making history. This year, for the first time since 1981, the Billboard Top 100 saw two country music songs hold the number one and number two spots. This undeniable mainstream success has the music industry in America saying the genre has entered a new era. But back home in Australia, local artists don't feel as optimistic. In Australia, I feel like you don't hear country music on your mainstream radios or any anything like that. I think people do still visualise it as a completely separate like thing here in Australia and that's why we have all our own country music radio and all that stuff. We're not sitting in that support bracket for Australian musicians. That's Josie. She's an up-and-coming country artist based in Townsville, North Queensland. Josie released her debut single this year. Hooking into TikTok as a way to promote her music was the key to early success for Josie's debut song. TikTok is just the place to be at the moment. All those, yeah, top number ones, you just see them, you know, blow up on TikTok. And it's like pushing my music out to a much larger audience than I probably would have ever been able to reach. And yeah, I've seriously gained so much from TikTok. It's a whole thing. That's seriously how so many artists are blowing up these days. Yeah, organically. Don't have to spend money on it and off you go. Josie wanted her first single to be authentic, 
rather than take on an Americana sound, which many local country music artists have recently leaned towards. I was just trying to find something to write a song about, and I was like, okay, what can I write about? Let me go listen to the Fresh Country playlist on Spotify. You know, go and have a listen. That's where all the top songs are these days. What's everyone singing about? What what are people listening to? So many people are, like, referencing America, Nashville, Tennessee, all that sort of stuff. You know, I could sit there and write a song about that, easy done, but I really, really wanted my whole thing to be that I'm a genuine storyteller. I'm authentic and raw and real, and that's what I wanted. So I was like, well... If that's the case, I can't sing about Tennessee. And, well, that's where the whole song blossomed. I was like, hang on, this actually is my song. Here we go. So I can kind of get the best of both worlds and still name drop those, you know, fun words, Tennessee, Mississippi, all that stuff, but then still bring in the whole Australian vibe and, you know, talk about the Nullarbor, talk about how trucks aren't four-wheel drives, like all that sort of stuff. But like many up-and-comers in the industry, a question looms over her career. How and where Will she be able to make it? It's scary. It really is. Like, I've worked so hard for everything and to think that it might not go anywhere and I just spend all this money and time and effort on nothing. It is really scary. But also scary to think about if I wanted to move over to Nashville, like, what are the chances over there even? Because it is just so saturated. Like, everyone over there has that same dream. They want to do the same thing. They want to go and become a country star. And it's like, well, you know, you, you feel like you have a better chance over in Australia because it's not that saturated but then everything that is anything has come from Nashville. So it's like, what do you do? Josie is not alone in her opinions. West Australian artist Johnny Taylor has been in the industry for over a decade and gained popularity on programs like Australian Idol and Australia's Got Talent. But he said it's very difficult to break through to a broader audience. I think massive stardom has to happen in America. Yeah, yeah, and I've seen it. I've seen it happen with people here. People that are so, so talented, have all the charisma, have all the talent, have the looks, have everything behind them. The most powerful managers in the business, and you know, can't quite make it here. They go to America, and all of a sudden, it's like, oh, he is actually awesome, or she is awesome. So why is there a gap? Why did tickets to Luke Combs sell out immediately? Yet. Most Aussies struggle to name five local country artists under the age of 30. Josie said it comes down to our perception of the genre. When I think back to me in primary school, everyone would like bully you for listening to country music. It just was not the in thing. If you listen to country, yeah, hillbilly or redneck or something like that, like, or a bogan. You know, people just weren't that into it and they you had to be a specific niche to be into country music but I think these days like that perspective has definitely changed but I still think there is room for people to acknowledge that it is just music like and it is becoming a huge genre it's at the top of the billboard charts it's number one at the moment. Johnny Taylor agrees. I don't know how to shake the, the sense of it being so daggy you know it's, it's kind of always been that way. I think a, a lot of the issue is the whole country and western thing. You know, everyone says, oh, how do you write a country song? It's about when you lose your dog and your wife leaves you and this, that and the other. And those cliches are definitely there. I mean, you don't have to look hard to find them. But there's a lot of really clever music. There's a lot of really clever songwriters. So I think once people open their minds to that sort of thing and, and look past the stupid cliches of the, you know, chewing straw in the fields kind of vibe, um, they might actually find something that's, it's quite cool and, and not always so stereotypical. Barry Harley is the festival manager for the Tamworth Country Music Festival, which many consider to be the birthplace of the country music industry in Australia. He said there are a number of reasons for why musicians are struggling to make it 
these days. Fans consume their music very differently than they did <clears throat> even 10 years ago. And so that in itself has been a bit of a challenge for the Australian country music industry is because international music has been more readily available than perhaps it was 10 or 15 years ago. Add to that also the loss of importance of radio play, um, you know, the number of radio stations that actually commercially were playing country music, you know, back 20 years ago seemed to be higher and it's difficult now for artists to establish themselves and to build a fan base. Of course, no one in the industry industry is naive about a major factor population we don't have the population in australia to actually um support um sort of emerging emerging artists of any genre i mean you know if you appeal to one percent in the united states you're a millionaire if you appeal to one percent in australia you've got to have a second job at iga so where does the future lie for an up-and-comer like josie and a seasoned pro like johnny taylor country music industry in Australia has a bright future from the point of view of the numbers of people that are involved in it. There's a lot of people out there still following the genre and uh, if only we could actually translate that into dollars and cents for them to give them a, a better career, that would be that would be great. Barry Harley, the festival manager for the Tamworth Country Music Festival, ending that story from Lucy Cooper. And there was some additional reporting there from Sophie Johnson. And that is Australia Wide for this Thursday. I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you're having a great afternoon and evening. Cheerio. ABC Listen.